Matthew chapter 23 today, as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we've talked about every week recently, that things are intensifying. This is the week before Jesus' crucifixion. And so as he is pouring into his disciples, and, and as we've been reading about him there in the temple, teaching the crowd, also in giving strong correction to the religious leaders, he's, he's hitting harder than he ever has. His time is short, and he's, he's just clarifying some really important things. And the religious leaders have been trying to trap him, get him caught in his words, so that they can somehow cause division, discredit him in some way, and each time Jesus just, just dismantles them. But now something has changed as we started chapter 23 last week. There's a big switch where Jesus goes from dealing with the religious leaders to just teaching the crowd. That the, the religious leaders are all still there. They're still hearing what's going on. They're still hearing Jesus' words, imagining, I imagine them just red in the face angry because Jesus has also made the switch of just talking about here are things that are wrong to saying, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you blind leaders. He's not pulling any punches. And so they're hearing all of it. And this is going to even intensify as we, we finish the second half of chapter 23. But there's also something that, I, that we're going to see here. And we, we need to keep this in mind because it's easy to, to read the, the correction that Jesus is giving them and hear it very harshly. But we, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is showing tough love. I mean, his hope is that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, would also repent. He's given them opportunity. He's told them what's necessary. They have refused to humble themselves. But that does not mean that Jesus has shut the door to them repenting. And, and we're going to see the example, I think, a uh, great truth, uh, one of those things I'm excited about today because it's something that very often is misunderstood, but it reveals so much about the very character of God and his heart towards us. And so uh, let's pray, and we'll get into the second half of chapter 23. Lord God, again, we just submit ourselves to you. We want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts that you would change us, give us ears to hear. And, and Lord, I pray you just protect us from distraction, things outside or things in our own minds. Lord, that you just remove those, that we could hear you clearly today. And again, we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of your mint, and anise and cumin, and neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, there's no nice way to say those things, right? I mean, you, can, you can't read that and go, maybe Jesus said it in a nice way. It, it's, it's, very, it's very to the point. It's very like, these are the things you guys are doing wrong, and you're the leaders of the nation. And again, not pulling punches, not sugarcoating any of it, not that Jesus ever did. But even when he says, woe to you, we talked about this last week, that the, the translation doesn't quite come across powerfully enough in, in our English language, but in the Greek, it means, it's like a combination of fear and dread and mourning. It's like Jesus is saying, I grieve for your future. And they should be filled with dread at it. He is, he is grieving their doom if they do not change their direction. Now, in all of these warnings and, and straight-up rebukes that Jesus is giving them, last week in the first half of the chapter and in this week, he's showing their messed-up priorities. You know, like last week he talked about, you guys swear, uh, or you say that if you swear by the temple, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're bound to do it. Now, he wasn't saying it's okay to swear. And in fact, Matthew 5, he made it clear, don't swear by anything. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So he's not backing up on that. He's just saying, you guys don't even know what's important. What's, what's more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Right? Now, again, when it came to the sacrifices on the altar and the gold in the temple, they got a cut of that. And so they were very motivated to tell people, oh, yeah, the gold's more important. The sacrifice is more important. And Jesus is saying, you guys don't even know what's important. You don't even know, have the priorities. And so he, he continues really in that, that they focus on the things that really don't matter. And he gives the example that not only are, are, are they tithing, but it's not just they tithe a certain amount of their income or their harvest or their livestock. These guys will tithe even of their spices. And again, okay, that's fine, whatever. But imagine how hard that would be. If you've got you know, a pound of, of little peppercorns or whatever they are, you have to count them all out to know what 10% is. And then they would give 10% of that, right? And it seems, wow, that's very spiritual. That's very godly. I mean, man, they're, they're tithing of everything. And, and people were impressed by that. That's the whole point. That people would look at them and go, wow, that's commitment. That's truly a love of God. Those people are going over and above, even tithing of the smallest thing like spices in their kitchen. Again, that's how legalism works. It's taking something, a rule that I make up. Well, actually, I guess it begins, first of all, with something that's good. The idea of tithing is scriptural. Both New and Old Testament, very clear that it's a, an act of worship on our part to say, Lord, Thank you for all you've given me. I give some of it back. It's yours, right? And, it, and it's a good thing. But you take something good and you add to that. Try and make it look like you're on the next level. Try and make it look like you're just, just, just a little bit above everybody else. And usually it's something that I can keep or that I'm willing to keep that most people can't or won't. 
And then, again, I just look like I'm just a little bit, little bit more godly, a little bit more committed. Yeah, sure, you love God, but not as much as me, right? That's what it does. That's the whole point of, of legalism. Now, now, how would people even know that I tithe 10% of my spices? It's easy. I tell them, right? <laughs> you just got to let them know, you know, and you got to do it in a very spiritual way. Like, wow, the other day, you know, I was just thinking about the goodness of the Lord as I sat there counting out all my little peppercorns to make sure that I was going to tithe. Of, and people are, oh, you tithe of your spices? Oh, you don't? <laughs> I'll pray for you. Count, count <laughs> yeah, count the grains of salt. And, and again, this is, this is part of our sin nature. This is part of how legalism works. It's, 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 it's this thing that we want to just feel like we're just a little bit above, just a little bit more, um, and, and hold it over somebody else. Jesus says, basically, you guys are focused on what doesn't matter and you are neglecting what does. The weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faith. Now, the word for neg- or weightier matters is, is cool because it does not mean hard or complex. He's not saying you've neglected the things that are difficult to understand. He's, the word literally means the things that are at the core things that are central, the things that are foundational, you've ignored them. Justice, mercy, and faith. And the thing is, is that they require more of us, don't they? So much easier to keep a rule. So much easier to keep some little thing or check a a box to, to make sure that I'm spiritual enough or righteous enough or whatever. But when it comes to the things of justice and mercy and faith, it requires something of me. It's hard. Because it requires something. First of all, it requires that I personally understand what those things are. Not just some theoretical idea of what mercy is or justice or faith. These are things that I have found to be true, that my life is founded upon them, that they are central at the core of my being. And I believe it also should be these things are growing in our lives, that we're we're coming to understand them in deeper ways all the time. It's not just a one-time understanding. It's an ever-growing understanding. Justice. It's not what we usually think of with justice, that I understand what other people deserve, right? <laughs> that's, that's the kind of justice we like, right? Like, oh, I know what they need. Yeah, I know what they need to hear. Boy, you just give me a chance, and I'll give them some justice. It's not what it's speaking of. It's saying that I am a person who treats others justly. I do what's right. I honor them, right? I keep my word. I am a person and my yes is yes, my no is no. Um, And I treat others fairly. Mercy. The idea that I give understanding and grace when others don't deserve it. That I could come down on them legally or with worldly justice, But instead, I choose to show mercy because I've been shown mercy. Again, I understand it. And faith, simply trusting that God is going to keep the promises he's made. But again, it requires something. That means I've tested those promises and I've found them to be true. 
right? These aren't just concepts. These aren't just ideas. This is something that we're living in, growing in. And, and as Jesus is talking about this, I think it's also important that he's not dismissing tithing. I remember having one guy tell me, oh, tithing's not a New Testament truth. And I'm like, what? And he pointed to this scripture going, oh, see, Jesus is telling these guys, hey, you know, tithing isn't important. That is not what Jesus is saying. Because right after that, he says, these things you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So yeah, tithing is an act of worship. I think too often, pastors, teachers, churches make way too big of a deal about it, slipping it in every message they can. <laughs> give, give, give. It's an act of worship like anything. It's between you and the Lord. And it should not be the focus. It should not take priority over things like justice and mercy and faith. But it also should not be left undone. In uh, Malachi chapter 3, specifically about tithing, this is the, the only time I can think of where God says, test me in this. And the idea is he's saying, I dare you. I dare you to give and see what my response is. So yes, it's very much a, a New Testament truth. Um, and we aren't to ignore it. But I do, again, think that it's part, just like the Pharisees are doing, concentrating on little things that don't matter that much and making up rules to twist or change something that God has created to be good, um, that we, in our fallen nature, love to distract and deflect and focus on those little details instead of the weightier matters. See, if I can shift a conversation to talk about the finer points of predestination and free will and blah, 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 then I never have to really address what I'm struggling with. Right? And people go, oh, that guy really knows his Bible, right? You hear all those verses he quoted. You hear all those theologians he knows, he's read about and read their stuff. And, but what, what is my struggle? Right? And I can focus on those little details and ignore the weightier matters in my own life. Now, another thing that I love here, and again, because there's such an intense scene that's happening happening is Jesus is, is speaking to these harsh truths. Um, we can miss the fact he uses humor here. Jesus used humor to teach a lot. And, and too often we miss it because we, we just kind of roll over and like, oh, okay. The idea of a plank being in somebody's eye and them trying to remove a speck from another person's eye is hilarious. And it would have been hilarious then too. It's a funny picture. And he does the same thing here as he's talking about these. Now, again, he's using some pretty harsh words. You hypocrites, you know, that's, and, and you blind teachers, blind guides, all these things. But then um, in verse 24, he says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet swallow a camel. And, and what's funny is he uses something that they did do, that when they would have a jar or something of wine, wine was probably the biggest thing, but there were other things, I suppose a soup or whatever, it was very common for little insects, like little tiny gnats and stuff, to get in there. And they would strain it out. But not the reason we think, right? We think, well, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. You don't want bugs in <laughs> your wine or in your soup or whatever. But we're thinking out of it as far as like germs and, you know, different things that we could get from those bugs or whatever. That wasn't their thought at all. Their thought was, there's no way to prepare a gnat to be kosher. <laughs> and you therefore can't ingest a, an insect 
because he hasn't been prepared properly according to the Jewish food law. And so they would go to this work to strain out wine to make sure that there were no even little tiny microscopic bugs in there so they didn't break the law. And so on the other side of that, Jesus is like, you got all this work to strain out a little tiny gnat, and then you turn around and devour a camel. That's a funny picture. And again, I don't think the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders were going to be laughing. They were the butt of that joke. But I think everybody else would have been dying, right? Because we also kind of misunderstand, I think, people were aware of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. They weren't ignorant of it. They saw what was going on. They just didn't know what to do about it. And they didn't know enough to say, well, they're, they're absolutely wrong. They're just like, this doesn't seem right. And there's some really interesting writings around the time of Jesus uh, that, that show that. that. The common people were like, we go to the temple because we're supposed to, but we don't trust those people at all. Right? Unfortunately, that's kind of the state of a lot of churches nowadays. We go because we're supposed to be in fellowship. We go because we're, we want to hear the word, and, and, but we don't really trust those guys at all. You know? And that's sad. So again, Jesus is bringing these things out, these strong uh, rebukes. And I think, again, we can read about the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and we're like, oh, those guys, I can't believe that they were so legalistic. I can't believe they were so distracted and missed the mark so much. But if we're honest, we need to be careful because we can so quickly fall into this same trap that they were in. Maybe we're not making up a bunch of rules and laws, but we're also not necessarily being honest about the things in our lives. It's easy to show up to church and put on the Sunday best, and you put on the the outward smile, and people say, hey, how's it going? Oh, good. Praise the Lord, brother. Everything's great. And it's not great. We're not being authentic about our struggles, about what the Lord is doing. We keep everyone at a distance. We don't let anyone in too close. Attempting to keep up those appearances, focusing on the outside of the cup and ignoring what's on the inside. And that's what Jesus says, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. The inside is the priority. And that's always the case. The inside is always the priority. And, and it's funny because you know, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and, and it was very, at least the one we went to, was very much about the outside. Everybody wore the best, right? And, uh, and I think maybe I've gone too far the other way sometimes where I'm like, I don't care if people show up in hats and board shorts and they're here at church because the inside is the priority to me. Because I, I've already seen what that looks like when everyone looks good on the outside and inside is nothing but dead men's bones. Right? And, and I mean, you're a pretty good-looking group of people. <laughs> so don't take it personally. But, you know, again, the outside is not the priority here. I should move on. Okay. <laughs> but again, working on the inside requires more of us. Right? It'd be great if all you had to do to show up to church was just man, suit and tie and look good and say the right things. And a lot of people, that's what they get by with. To deal with the inside requires more. It means I'm honest. 
first of all, with the Lord himself. As if he doesn't know. And that's a funny thing about our character, right? Is that we try and hide things from the, from the Lord. All-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful. And we're like, I'm not telling him about this. And the Lord's like, I know about that. Right? I know more about that than you know about that. It requires us to be honest with each other. And, and it requires some accountability to say, look, I'm struggling in this area. This is, this is a thing I, I have difficulty with. And I need to have somebody that understands me, that it shows mercy and kindness and, and, and will be praying for me in order to help me get through this, right? That's a very vulnerable, dangerous place. And we all know that. You know, love is dangerous. And a lot of times we, we pretend it's not. But that's what we're talking about. Is, is a family coming together as a church, being that honest and that real, it is dangerous. And we've all been burnt. We've all been hurt by people that have taken something we've offered, like here's something that not everyone knows, and we've had it used against us. Right? It requires something. It never ceases to be dangerous. But it is so important that we are living a life like that. Now, I'm not suggesting you just unload every single secret on the, who or the person next to you is, right? Because it's, it's part of that relationship that we, we grow in. It, it's an, an honor to have somebody come to us and go, hey, I need to share something with you. And I'm trusting that it's going to be safe. But that takes time, and that takes a growing relationship that that, that trust is earned. Now, Jesus gives this powerful picture. And to me, I don't know why, but even from the time that I first got saved, I remember hearing this, this picture that he gives here, and it was so clear and so powerful to me. Um, in verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So in Israel, it was common, what they would do every year before Passover, is that they would go around and they would mark all the tombs and grave sites with whitewash. Sometimes it would just be a stack of stones and they would cover it with this white, basically white paint. And, and people would understand, we don't want to go near that because to touch a grave would make you unclean for Passover. Right? So it was this, this public service that they would do to keep people from being made unclean by touching a tomb or a grave. And most of the time, the tombs were very plain, you know. Just a, a small cave or, or something cut into the side of a hill or something like that. But sometimes they were very ornate. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to talk about the graves of the prophets and, and the, the saints of old and things like that that they had made into these monuments. And so sometimes that was the case. What Jesus is kind of referring to here is those types of graves that that if you had never been to Israel and you didn't know any of this stuff and you showed up right before Passover, you would see one of these ornate graves and it would look more like a house than a grave. And you could ask, who lives there? Nobody. It's full of death and uncleanness. And Jesus is going, that's you guys. On the outside, beautiful. And to the untrained eye, people would look at it and go, that's life. But the truth is, it's death. And just like a grave would cause someone to, to be defiled and unclean, 
Self-righteousness does the same thing. It looks beautiful on the outside. That's why people were drawn in by it. But it is defiling. And I have to say, this, I, I've actually had to kind of back up a little bit because this is such an important topic to me that I've kind of hit it way too hard in the past. <laughs> but I've seen families that I desperately love absolutely self-destruct through self-righteousness. Over and over and over through the years of ministry. Not just once or twice, multiple times. The family that has all these rules about how they do and how they raise their kids and all the stuff that they're about and all the stuff they don't ever do. And there's only so long that you can keep that death contained. And it will come out and destroy if it isn't dealt with. Every time. And so it breaks my heart how many times we've seen that. And it, it's one of those things that it's not new. Jesus is, is speaking these same words to them that I have spoken these words to those same families going, you are going to self-destruct if you keep going this way. Nope, we're fine. And sure enough, they have self-destructed. Now verse 29 goes on. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And therefore you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the, con the, the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, for I say to you, you shall, not see, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, some harsh words that Jesus is using here. And I think it would have been a roller coaster of emotion to be there and watch this going down. Because he uses humor and people are laughing. And then he would just use these words that everyone would have went, oh, I can't believe he just said that. Right? It would have been back and forth. And these religious leaders, again, this was one of the things that they would commonly do, that to kind of talk about how they were more righteous than their forefathers, more righteous than the generations ahead of them. Oh, we would have never persecuted the prophets. We would have never done it. And to prove that, we are going to adorn their graves as, as a monument to their righteousness. And Jesus tells them, yeah. Even though you're, you're saying this, verse 30, he says, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Um, no matter how much they were saying, actually what they're doing is proving 
that they were exactly like their forefathers. In fact, even worse. While they'd say, oh, well, we would never persecute the prophets, and Jesus is kind of pointing to them up, and he already has pointed to, well, how did you guys treat John? John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God to tell you of the coming Messiah. How'd you treat him? So they rejected the prophet that was given them, and even more than a prophet, the Messiah himself stands right in front of them. And they reject every word he has to say. So yeah, not only are they as, are as bad as the past generations, uh, they're worse. And Jesus goes on to say, not only are you persecuting, or would, you would have persecuted the prophets of the past, and you are of the present, you're going to persecute all those that I send to you from this moment on. And again, this is a cool thing where Jesus isn't saying, when righteous people come to you, or when prophets come to you. He says, I will send. And he's speaking of the church. Verses 34 and 35, Therefore, indeed, I send prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify. He goes on to say that, that on you may come all of the righteous blood shed on the earth, all the way from Abel to, to Zechariah. Now, it sounds like, and this is, this is going to sound like a bit of a rabbit trail, but it does tie back in, and I think this is really important. This is where we get an amazing insight to the character of God and the way he works with us that I think very often has been misunderstood. Um, because it could sound like Jesus is saying that this punishment that's coming upon them is that they're bearing the weight of their father's sin. That what their forefathers have done in persecuting the, the prophets, it, it is now on them to pay for those sins. Uh, that's not what Jesus is saying. Really what he's saying is, is simply that they are completing the work their fathers began. That, that they began persecuting the righteous men, and these guys are going to like take it to a whole other level, to the pinnacle of, of rejecting the Messiah himself. But in no way is Jesus saying that they're bearing the guilt of their father's sin. And, and again, it, could say, it sounds like that because he says, fill up then the, the measure of your father's guilt. Um, but that's not it. And I think it's important because this is a huge mistake that people make. And, I, and I've seen it come out in a couple different ways. Sometimes it's talked about as being like a generational curse or paying for the sins of the father. Um, and I've seen it where it's a parent that knows that they've had a lot of baggage and have done a lot of wrong. And when they see their kids going off track, I've had them say, those are my sins. They're, they're paying for my sins. I, I've also had people who are adults that come and say, well, this is a generational thing. This goes all the way back for generations in my family. It's, it's something that is still like this curse upon us. And we have to understand, because how we view that greatly changes how we see the character of God. If we believe that he is somehow punishing the children for their father's or their parents' mistakes, we're seeing him in the wrong light completely. Now, we all have lots of baggage, there's no doubt, right? We're a mess. <laughs> However we were raised, wherever we were raised, they, we learned a lot of bad things from our environment, from our parents, from, you know, we all have stuff that we have to deal with. That's just life, right? I, I think 
Those are things that we need to be honest about, not try and hide. I think there's plenty of stuff we need to unlearn, especially when the Lord is, begins doing a work in us when we get saved. I even think there's genetic things that we have to deal with that just need to be overcome, right? None of these things are impossible, but these are not us paying for the sins of our parents. Again, that paints a horrible picture of God's character. You might want to write this down because it's an important scripture dealing with this topic. Uh, Ezekiel 18. And there in Ezekiel 18, God is talking to Ezekiel and he's speaking of how he does things. So this is what I'm about. This is how I deal with things. And in verse 20, so Ezekiel 18, verse 20, says the child will not share in the guilt of his parent, nor will the parent share in the guilt of his child. God just says, I don't do that. It's not the way I do things. Now, I, again, I've had this discussion with people, and there's some people who are very passionate about this. Oh, yes, that is a real thing. That's what God does and everything. And they will usually point to his, uh, Exodus chapter 34. And in Exodus 34, it's actually the second half of verse 7. It speaks of God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And people go, oh, that's it. That's a generational curse right there. Here's the question. First of all, before I ask the question, understand that that scripture has to be taken out of context to say that. That's the second half of that verse. The question is, is why does God visit the children to the third and fourth generation? Is he visiting those generations to curse them or to punish them or to bring healing? Which is consistent with what we find in Scripture? Healing, right? And that's very clear if you read that verse in context. Um, and again, we won't go over all of it, but in is, uh, Exodus 34, this is where God is describing himself to Moses. Moses is there on Mount Sinai, and God descends from the cloud and proclaims his name. And that isn't just like God. It's he proclaims his character. Moses, this is who I am, right? And so I'm going to read to you starting in verse 5 of Exodus 34 and says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty. And that's important. So he's saying everyone will be held accountable individually. He doesn't just dismiss sin. Oh, that's okay. We'll just say it's not sin. He doesn't do that. Everybody will be held accountable for what they do. And especially in context of what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand that it's if you won't receive forgiveness and you won't receive mercy, then the only thing left for you is justice. And that is your choice. And then he goes on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I think it's very clear. Visiting 
those children to bring healing and forgiveness for the mistakes of their parents. And Matthew 23 is the perfect example of that. Jesus is literally right there, speaking to the descendants of those who killed the prophets, visiting the children's children's children to bring forgiveness and healing and mercy. Not to punish. He is there to save. However, they will not humble themselves. Again, he's not going to force anybody. He's not going to make somebody repent. But he is visiting each generation to go, you can repent. You can change your direction. You can receive healing. You can break that cycle. And you can be set free. But he leaves it up to us. Again, it just blows my mind that what's said there in Exodus is literally happening right here. And the fact that they won't believe, that they won't humble themselves, it breaks his heart. Verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Man, generations of people who killed the prophets and now their children are right there. And Jesus is going, look, you can be forgiven. You can be saved. And they are not willing. Now, of course, primarily this is speaking of salvation, right? That, that turning from the path of hell, turning from the path of destruction to Jesus Christ, repenting of our ways, and receiving forgiveness and being saved by his grace, by his work, is, is what is being pointed to here. But I also believe that even once we are saved, this is a promise that we misunderstand sometimes. Sometimes we think of it even completely opposite. Oh, this is just my, my stuff. This is my junk. This is, goes all the way back to my family, and, and I am what I am. Can't be changed. You know, yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But we forget that this is an ongoing and growing relationship that he wants with us. That he wants to take us deeper. He wants to reveal things about our life, about our past, in order to set us free. And, and here's the thing. Here's how we can miss it. We can absolutely miss what he wants to do by focusing on the outside of the cup by looking on the outside for appearances, by not letting him do his full work on the inside to bring healing and cleansing. We focus on the things that don't matter, and we ignore the weightier matters. And again, yes, it's hard, and it requires things of us, and it's painful. I know I've shared this before, but it's, when, it, when I think about the Lord doing that work within my own heart, I always flash back to this. When I was uh, 10 years old, I was riding my bike with my buddies, and we decided it would be a really great idea to build a jump, which is a mistake in the first place, and that we would not just jump our bikes, but we would jump them over this big wheelbarrow full of wood. I don't know why that would seem like a good idea. And so 
we went down the steep hill, hit the jump, and would jump over this wheelbarrow. I never made it. First time, front wheel caught the wheelbarrow full of wood. I went way over my handlebars, and I came down completely on my, on my wrist. And uh, broke off, you know, a little bump right here on your wrist? That's your growth plate. So I snapped that thing off and put it clear down here into my elbow. Yeah. And I, and I went to the doctor completely still just all adrenaline and freaking out. And, and, and he's like, yeah, that's a mess. And he goes, okay, you've got two options. One, we can do nothing. And I'm like, I like that. Let's do nothing. I'm fine with nothing. And, and he goes, but here's what happens when we do nothing. Because you're still growing, this bone will grow. And this one won't. And so by the time you're 18, you'll lose all the use in your hand because it'll be so deformed and twisted from the bone growing wrong. He goes, or you can endure a lot of pain right now. And I tell you, it's going to hurt. I've never had a doctor tell me that. I like it when they lie to me. When they're like, you're just going to feel a little pressure. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, okay, I can handle pressure. And then they just do whatever they're going to do. You lied. That's what I wanted. And this guy was like, no, this is going to hurt a lot. He said, but... We can fix it right now. And I feel like that's how the Lord speaks to me sometimes. Jack, we can do nothing, but you won't grow properly. And we eventually will need to fix it anyway, right? Or we, or we can endure some pain right now together. And you can start growing in the right direction, right? My prayer is that we would be people found willing, that he still wants to gather us under his wings of protection. He still wants to do a great work in us, to set us free from the mistakes of our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, whatever it might have been, the, the mistakes that we have personally made, but we must be willing. And, and that's my prayer. Lord, that we would be willing for him to do the work he wants. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.